Good morning. I'm so glad that you are here with us this morning, uh, joining us here in this auditorium. And if you're online with us, we're excited that you've joined us this morning as well. We are uh, continuing in our series on the Gospel of John. But before I do that, I need to take a poll. If, you, if I've been your pastor for, uh, what, about a year and a half, you would know this if you call Radiant Home, that uh, we do polls sometimes, and they all center around food. So there's a picture of your pastor, but uh, I hope you had a great 4th of July, but here's my, here's my poll. How many of you had watermelon yesterday, because that's a 4th of July thing, isn't it? Like, a, you can't really celebrate America unless you uh, eat some watermelon. So we had watermelon. Watermelon has been, uh, I, I'm surprised it's only like half of you. Let me do that again. Watermelon eaters? Yeah. Who's had watermelon this summer at some point? Yes, there we go. That's what I'm looking for. Listen. I don't know about you, but 2020 is a good watermelon year, is it not? You have. Like, we're, like in our family, we are feasting on watermelon. Heather and I took a bike ride yesterday for about 11 miles. We went through the Kroger drive through for the pharmacy on our bikes. Um, and Heather's like, man, I'm here at Kroger. I want a watermelon. I'm like, babe, your basket is not going to fit a watermelon. Uh, so as soon as we go home, she hops in the car and goes to Kroger to buy a watermelon. And an hour later, she comes back with a feast for Fourth of July. But... Start off with the watermelon because watermelon has been good this year. So good and so much watermelon is being eaten in my home that I'm convinced that my kids will look back on the year 2020 and after COVID, they're going to remember 2020 for watermelon. I'm just saying that's really what it is. Because there's something about having some really satisfying, juicy, tasty watermelon on a hot July day. But nothing is probably as, well, nothing, there's, there are... You, hit, you love when preachers say that. Nothing is as bad as that. That's the worst. It's the worst. There are other things that are bad, but having a dry, tasteless watermelon is pretty bad. Pretty disappointing and leave you wanting. Well, today's passage, we speak about deep down satisfaction and or that wanting. It's not about watermelons, I promise. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 7. And if you, as you turn... Let me remind you that we are in this series on the, the, the book of John, and when I started this series last year, I think I'd been the pastor for about six or eight months, something like that, I started the series saying, hey, let's get a fresh look at who Jesus is, because we want to make this about him. As, we, as I start out my time as pastor, let's make this about Jesus, not knowing the world was going to change the way it has changed. I don't know about you, but I need to keep my eyes on a fresh revelation and a picture of who Jesus is as I live in the world today. We are in the series on John, and we've seen throughout this whole series that John writes the account of Jesus' life with a purpose that people would believe, and in believing that they would have life, he, he lists that out himself in John chapter 20. That's the purpose of this book, and we've seen in this section that we are in John that we see a, a changing of how Jesus is received by the people there was hesitation about who he is, but now there's outright opposition. And we're going to see that in today's passage. They, they, they sign a warrant for his arrest, the, the religious leaders. The last time we were together, we were, you may remember that there's something called the, the Feast of Shelters, or the Feast of Tabernacles, where the, the people of Israel, the, the, the Jewish people, they, they build these little temporary shelters and live in them uh, to celebrate God's provision through their time in the wilderness, that he was their God who provided for them. And so that's where we are. Jesus sneaks into Jerusalem undercover, secretly, and then at some point he makes himself known publicly. He stands up in the temple and begins to teach, and that's where we left off last week. 
Read with me, John chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem, now remember Jesus is teaching in the temple, so some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me, and you, don't, but you, and you, and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. But I know him because I came from him, and he sent me to you. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come, a theme that we've seen throughout the book of John. His time has not yet come, and then we see the, the book change in a few chapters. His time has come. Many among the crowds in the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect a Messiah to do more miracle, miraculous signs than this man has done? When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But they told him, but Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer than I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me. And you cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in the other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me, but not find me. And where I go, you cannot go. So here we have Jesus teaching in the temple. The people are shocked that he's being unchallenged publicly. They know that his life is in danger. They know that, um, that he's taking a risk by being out there publicly. As a matter of fact, um, they're wondering why the, the religious leaders aren't doing anything. They say maybe he, they believe he's the Messiah. And they said, oh, he can't be the Messiah. because They expected the Messiah to simply just appear. And Jesus is like, yeah, you know me, but you don't really know me because I was sent here. He's talking about where he came from. I was sent here, and you don't know the one who sent me, which is really offensive, especially to the, the religious leaders. You don't know the one who sent me. At that, the religious leaders employ the, the temple guards who were kind of a police force to keep order in the temple. They, they sign an arrest warrant and say, go get this guy. And then we see later in this passage, we haven't read it yet, what, what takes place. We're going to look at that in a moment. Then Jesus changes his language from where I've come from to, to where I'm going, and, and they are confused. Now, look with me. I'm going to skip the heart of this passage because we're going to come back to these next few verses. So we're going to skip to, to, to verse 40, and I just want you to scan. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's a lengthy passage. Uh, we've already read quite a bit. But take a look at verse 40. When the crowds heard him say this, well, what's this? We're about to read that. We just skipped it. And then look down at verse 46. Well, actually, verse 45, when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the temple guards who were employed to arrest Jesus came back without Jesus in hand. The religious leaders are upset. The leading priests and the Pharisees demanded, you know, why didn't you bring him in? Their response in verse 46 is, we have never heard anyone speak like this. Well, what did Jesus say that he spoke like this? And that's the heart of this passage. We're going to skip back up to verse 37 and read through verse 39. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. 
For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from the heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to anyone who believed, believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Let me explain a little something that takes place. Because we, we talked about the, the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of Tabernacles, of Booths. What's taking place at the celebration of, of remembering God's provision in the wilderness for 40 years. Along the way, there was a, a, a water ritual, a water ceremony that was, that was added. I mean, God gave them this festival, but, but now they add this, this ritual because they remember that God provided water from the rock while they were in the wilderness. So you have this water ceremony where each day uh, the priest drew water from the pool of Siloam. They, they, they draw it out with this golden pitcher. They would walk into the temple around the altar, and then as they got close to the water gate, that a psalm was recited thanking God for his provision. And it took place every single morning for six days. This little parade took place, this drawing of water. This psalm was recited. On the seventh day, they did it seven times. And on the eighth day, there was a day of reflection, and they did not do that. That's the climax of the festival. And Jesus stands up on the day that there is no water drawn, and he makes this pronouncement. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. You see, when Jesus was talking about anyone who is thirsty, he's talking about the, requ the requirement, the, the prerequisite. Who is it that can come and drink? What do they have to do or accomplish? What do they have to have? What do they have to earn? Nothing. They just have to be thirsty. There's one qualification listed in this passage. And Jesus stands up and says, I am the fulfillment of this, this whole festival, and if you're thirsty, come to me. There is a promise in that, in that water ceremony. There's a promise in that, in that ritual that it's a celebration of the past, but also a looking forward to God pouring out his spirit in the messianic age. And Jesus stands up at the climax of this festival and says, I'm the fulfillment of that. And the only thing that I require from you to take and drink is that you're thirsty. Or at least to recognize that you're thirsty. You see, Jesus is not talking about physical thirst here. We know that he's talking about, what, spiritual thirst. You and I were made to, to find satisfaction in God. Without water, our body becomes thirsty. Without God, our spirit, our soul becomes thirsty. He paints the picture using physical thirst and shows us what the spiritual thirst looks like. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 4 when, he, when he's tempted by, by the Satan. People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. Our body was made to live on water, and our soul was made to live on God. Jesus uses the word thirst to describe the soul's condition he indicates that what he is offering will satisfy the soul, will satiate this thirst like a cold glass or a piece of watermelon on a hot July day. What Jesus offers is satisfying. It's the remedy for thirst. It's what, you know when you take a really cold glass of water and you go, ah, am I the only one? That's the picture Jesus is drawing to what he's offering. 
to our soul. Who is it that drinks? Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. It's the one who believes. And what is it that they drink? It's Jesus himself. I know he's speaking figuratively here. But he does the same thing in the previous chapter when he's in Capernaum in the synagogue. And he says this in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Again in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. He says anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. Speaking of the water in the well. But anyone who drinks the water, this water I give, will never be thirsty again. Jesus is the bread of life, which we saw last chapter, and here he is the living water, which we've seen in chapter 4. And once again, we see the satisfaction that comes from, fe- from feasting on him, from drinking and eating figuratively. See, our souls were made to feed on this bread and drink this water. Jesus doesn't have what our soul needs to, for satisfaction. Jesus is what our soul needs for satisfaction. He doesn't have what our soul needs. He is what our soul needs. Believing in Jesus is more than a decision based on facts. I think sometimes I think of like coming to Jesus as like, here are the facts I believe are true. Jesus came into the world, died for my sins, and therefore I believe, and I have a belief system. Jesus, believing in Jesus is more than a decision based on facts. It's the decision to feast, recognizing that he is the only one that can satisfy the soul. This is why John wrote the gospel that you may believe, and by believing it, you would have life in the power of his name. How many times have we seen the words belief and life linked in the book of John since we've been in these seven chapters? Belief and life. For anyone who believes will have eternal life. Jesus says in John 10, I've come so that you would have life and have it abundantly. Your, your translation maybe says abundantly. The New Living says, my purpose is to come and to give a rich and satisfying life. See, in Jesus, our soul finds satisfaction because it was made to crave satisfaction. It was made for Jesus to be that satisfaction. And believing is feasting. It's it's. We eat the bread of life by believing. We drink the living water by believing. Believing is coming to him to eat and drink for our soul's deepest satisfaction because our heart aches for Jesus at the root. Look at verse 39. How is it that believing is fasting? Or feasting, excuse me, not fasting. How is it, that's the opposite of feasting. How is it that believing is fasting? In verse 39, we see that John, in his narrator voice, gives and offers an explanation. Let me read it to you. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered his glory. So John steps back. Now, John wrote decades after this account. John wrote decades after the church had had been in existence. Decades after the church had been born on the day of Pentecost, he recognizes what Jesus is pointing forward to when he, when he is, is, is writing out the story of Jesus in this account. He's pointing forward to the time when God would pour out his spirit on his people, that the spirit would be given to the people, an era that begins after Jesus dies, after he's resurrected, and after he ascends to the Father. It's an era that John is writing in, and it's an era that we still live in today. Because when we put our trust in Jesus... When we call on him 
his spirit dwells in us. That's part of the transaction. There, there is like the right standing with God. There's a new creation. There is a right relationship that's restored. But his spirit dwells in us. It's not just a belief system. There is a relationship where the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells the believers. That's why we pray, Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus is fully man, fully God. He's not coming into your heart because he's a, the God man, right? We, we, we pray that figuratively because the spirit is what, what, what indwells us. This giving of the spirit is anticipated in that water ceremony I just spoke about, the one that Jesus said, I'm the fulfillment of that. There's a number of passages in the Old Testament that speak of water and kind of look forward to the, God pouring out his spirit. Let me read one to you, Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour out water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your parched fields. Then I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your children. The people are looking for this. And here we have Jesus saying, oh, it's coming. It's what the Father gives to everyone who believes a, a relationship, an experience where we walk in intimacy with him through his Holy Spirit. We feast on Jesus because of our relationship with the indwelling Spirit. When we believe God's Spirit indwells with us with his power, and his presence. Listen to what, John, what, what Jesus says in John 14, 16 through 17 to his disciples in the upper room as he prepares them for his departure. Then I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and it doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives within you now, or because he lives with you now and later will be in you. That's in the upper room with his disciples, preparing him for departure. That whole, I don't want to preach like future sermons right now. But Jesus goes to the upper room preparing for the cross with his disciples and he says, I'm about to leave you. And they're like, what? We want to go where you're going. And he, he recognizes kind of the panic in the voices of his disciples and he says, don't fear. Fear not. And part of that fear not is the fact that he's saying, I, I may be leaving, but I'm sending you a helper in the spirit. If you come to Christ, you drink our soul satisfaction in him. You get Christ through the indwelling of his spirit. You feast on him because believing in Jesus is more than a decision based on facts. It's a decision to feast, recognizing that only he can satisfy the soul. Look at verse 38b really quick. I wrote B. It doesn't say B in your Bible, I don't think. But it's the last half of 38 where Jesus says, if anyone, wants to, anyone who believes comes to me, they can drink. But he says, for the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from the heart. Literally, the, the, the original language there, it doesn't really translate well into English, is out of his belly. But for the ancient uh, Hebrews, 
the belly was the seat of our emotions. So what he's saying, the point is, it's our inner being, it's our heart, our soul, our spirit. Rivers of living water will come out. This is reminiscent once again of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink this water, or the water I give, will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. See, when you come to Jesus, you don't get a single drink, but you get a continuous flow because the source through the Spirit is in you. You will never have to search again for the source of satisfaction for your soul. Believing in Jesus is more than a decision based on facts. It's a decision to feast recognizing that only he can satisfy the soul. And that's the problem, that we're recognizing. Isn't that a problem? How often do we live our life without that recognition? We've tasted, we've seen, we know the deep down satisfaction that our relationship with him brings, that the dwelling the, the spirit that dwells us, our relationship with him. We know that. And yet while we know that, we continue to search for satisfaction elsewhere. Here's what I want you to do today as we consider this message and this idea. Check, for, check your life for signs of spiritual dehydration. The scary thing about dehydration is the moment you recognize those signs, what are the signs? Like your lips begin to like get cracky, right? Is cracky a word? You begin to feel thirst. They always tell you like, if you're starting, and there's other signs of dehydration, we're not gonna go there because it's not appropriate. But listen, some of you are smart. By the time you recognize those signs, what is it? It's too late, is it not? It's a scary thing that I could be thirsty physically for a lot longer than I realize I'm thirsty. And some of you, you may be sitting there going, oh, you know. Maybe if I took inventory of my, my walk with God, maybe I'm far more thirsty than the signs that I recognize. See, while we can know what brings true satisfaction, we chase after those things that we think will bring moments of satisfaction. If we could just accumulate those moments of satisfaction, those little moments of joy and happiness, that, that maybe those things that we can see that, that are seen far more tan tangible than some, like my relationship with God, we chase after those things. And what happens is that they begin to drive our life and orient our decisions and we become blind to our spiritual thirst. We become distracted by these things, whether it's our accomplishments in school or on the job, whether it's our social status, our bank balance, acceptance and approval of others. We chase those things. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit has departed from you. I'm not saying that you don't have a walk with the Lord. I'm not saying there's not, there's not. He's just saying, drink deeply. Drink deeply. He wants to be the reason that you go spiritually. 
Second thing I would say is after you take inventory of the signs of spiritual dehydration, that you would ask God to awaken a hunger and thirst for him above all else. In those moments that you don't desire God, and you're like, whoa, can you, can you have those moments? You can have those moments. In those moments when you don't desire God, be honest with him, because he already knows, right? Ask him, God, help me desire you above all else. I believe God will help you kindle that fire that, that once burned bright and hot. Because when you are deeply satisfied with him, when you deeply walk in the joy and satisfaction of just him, when you have nothing else but Jesus and you have everything, God is glorified. One preacher says this, and you've heard me quote this a lot, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. There is joy that comes from being satisfied in him, but yet it's a joy that it's a gift from him, but it's also something that we need to fight for because our heart is prone to wander because we look for satisfaction elsewhere. But when we find satisfaction in him, we experience that joy and God is glorified. Now, if you're not a Christian today, let me, uh, let me talk to you real quick because you probably know what it means to feel this thirst. Maybe there was not a word for it. Maybe you've tuned in online or maybe you've come and gathered here because there's something aching in your soul and you're like, I don't know, I need to find some answers and church seems to be the place where some people go. Let me give that a shot. If you know that aching feeling, that, that the realization that the things that we've chased after, the things that we spend our time and our energy after don't bring deep down satisfaction, there is a feast available to you. And it's a feast that brings life now and forever. It's the story of Jesus. That we are born separated from God. That Jesus Christ, the Logos, the one who was there at creation, takes on flesh, walks amongst his creation, lives a life that we could not live, and dies a death that we deserve on our behalf, in our place so that we could walk in relationship with him. And this message is not just a message to know, but it's an invitation to respond to. And like any invitation, it's intended for a response. What will you do with that invitation?